This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, AOPA and Gamma weigh in on Santa Monica. And the NTSB says fuel management is still an issue. Egregious FBO pricing. Watch out, AOPA's coming. And see what general aviation pilots are doing to help the efforts from Hurricane Harvey. All right, David, you ready to do Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, counterpack final 132.4. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. I'm David Tulis. David, what'd you think of the new intro? That's pretty awesome, huh? I like it, Ian. It's hip. <laughs> I'm feeling like we're more professional now. It's like we've reached the big leagues. Leaving on a jet plane <laughs> comes to mind, but we do have little little GA propeller sounds in there. I like it. Yeah, and uh, no more surf music, which is a, probably a good thing. You yeah, know? we're yeah. more aviation-oriented. Yeah, so uh, uh, that's cool. Well, you know, we celebrated our year yeah. uh, about a month ago. Yeah, so, so that's cool. It's a good time to do it. Right. All right, so we, we uh, introed a few things we're going to talk about today, but also stick around for our guest. Our guest this week is awesome, Chuck Boyd, who was a uh, POW from Vietnam. And a four-star general, Yeah. right? Yeah. And he's a big GA guy. Yeah. But you were telling me before the show that he also um, flew the F-100 and the F-105. Yeah, so the real deal. Very cool guy, very humble. So stick around for that conversation. All right, I will. Okay, so um, let's start with Santa Monica. We've covered this many times in the past, um, but the latest news is that AOPA and Gamma have weighed in officially with amicus briefs to um, an ongoing lawsuit about this. Yeah, and I was trying to wrap my head around that a little bit uh, before the show. So what what they're doing now is that there was a way for folks to complain ahead of time. Yes. And so there's sort of an end-around run that the FAA is not going to let people have that voice anymore? Yeah, so, and we'll talk about this a, a little bit in a minute, but, you know, the the Part 13 and Part 16 right. of the FARs allow anybody, really, to make complaints about an airport, officially. Okay. And so, as part of that SMO deal that, you know, we've, we've gotten into this, basically, the FAA and the SMO entered into a deal to be able to shorten the runway and then right. eventually close, yeah. Right. So, as part of that deal, that recourse for the average pilot, average citizen went away 
And only the FAA could basically go to the court and say SMO wasn't following the agreement. Okay. And, and it, so and that, that was took known away. As, that was known as a part 16. Yeah, that's part, that part of that process. That's right. right. So yeah, the agreement took that away. And so AOPA, um, in, its, in its comments, in its amicus brief, said basically like, hang on, wait a second. You, you know, you're taking away the voice of the people. Here. The only voice we basically would have left is yeah. something like that. Yeah. So and, the, and the, the bigger problem would be that that would set a precedent not just, just for this airfield, but elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. It's a bad deal. Absolutely. So Gamma, they also weighed on, on the lawsuit in, in a little bit of a different way. They said that the group, Gamma argued that by shortening the runway, the city is intentionally restricting access to certain aircraft, mainly jets. That makes sense. Yep. And uh, that's a direct violation of the Airport Noise and Capacity Act of 1990. Oh, a, little bit, a little bit of discrimination against jets. Yeah. Right. And General Aviation Manufacturers Association is on board with, with fighting some of this. Yeah, that's with right. With AOPA. Yep. This is all part of, you know, this, like we just mentioned, this long process with SMO. They just put in this application to shorten the runway. So um, still fighting out there. And uh, our general counsel, Ken Mead, said this is about accountability and access. Yeah. So we're back to the accountability um, issue, which is, Hey, they took the money to begin with. Yeah, and they right. said they were going to keep it open. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, just no live free up lunch, man. You can't take the money and not uh, abide by the agreement. They they uh, did what Steve Miller said: uh, take the money and run. Yeah, that's what they did. <laughs> Some of our podcast listeners will remember that song. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's talk about the NTSB. They put out a safety alert um, about a week ago, saying, "Hey, dummies." Stop running out of fuel. You know, and I almost missed that in my email inbox. I get a lot of information from the FAA and NTSB, but um, fuel-related management issues are still a problem. Yeah, a, a surprising. And, you know, I, and I guess we forget, you know, a lot of um, newer airplanes, of course, have digital fuel centers where yeah. we can actually start to trust what they're telling us right. in terms of how much quantity you have left. But uh, older airplanes, it's like, you know, you got to do the whole time and, and verify visually method. You do. And um, uh, I was telling you a little while ago, I'll let our pod podcast listeners know, I made a little trip. I, I really wanted to go all the way to Atlanta from Maryland. And uh, I looked at the range of the aircraft, and, and I was taking my daughter down there. And I wanted to make sure that I'd make it the whole way. And the plane would have done it. The, the range would have been mm -hmm. okay. It would have been squeaking by, yeah. you know, with the reserves. But, man, we... Yeah, you know, we made plans to stop uh, halfway, like in Winston Salem, North Carolina. Yeah, uh, that could not have been nicer, I must say. Yeah, and um, and that was something I felt like as a pilot in command, I wanted to just you know feel good about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we had a similar situation. I I took uh, the 182 down to Manio uh -huh. um, last week from Frederick to Manio, which is you know let's call it two hours. That's on the coast of North Carolina. Yeah, yeah, nice little airport. Yeah, and um, and so the 182 carries just a truckload of fuel and yeah. so could have made it back um and not refueled but it's like why why would yeah. you even take the chance especially you know? with folks that you love and they trust yeah. you they're yeah. trusting us as pilots in command yeah but um you know clearly people are not making these same decisions because ntsb said between 2011 and 2015 an average of 50 accidents a year 50 could be prevented yeah with proper fuel management yeah. so about one a week um, an airplane is is crashing because we're either running out of fuel or switching to the wrong tanks or you know something like that. And it's so. it's uh, on their on the list of top ten GA accident occurrence categories. It's number six. Yeah, now, it's not at the top, but it's 
it's right there in the middle of it. Yeah, so it's uh, NTSB says there's a number of things that you as the pilot can do, um, obviously. And some of these are, you know, it's like some of these are just so simple. And you think, God, if you just, it's like sort of obvious. Like look in the tank before you fly. Yeah, that's uh, it. That would be a good one. Yeah, and I get that some tanks are big. You can't really see. Buy a fuel stick. Well, know? well, there's another thing that a lot of people haven't considered, and 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 sometimes it does happen. The fuel drain, the, you know, uh, the petcock on, mm-hmm. uh, below is, uh, yeah. it gets stuck open. Yeah. A little bit drips out, yeah. and you don't know. And so that that could be something that's uh, that could cause problems. Yeah. I wonder yep. if they're uh, putting in their fuel accidents. I wonder if, if part of this is um, fuel management is, is there maybe water in fuel. Yeah, absolutely. So I was just going to ask you, tell me, so when you go somewhere like Winston-Salem, let's yeah. say you would have taken off again, what's your procedure? Do you, I, do you sump again or not? I do. Okay. Now, so that's because you got fuel, so right. you resump. Now, let's say you went to Lancaster. It's like an hour from here. From here. Yeah, it's close by. Um, you get you go and you eat lunch. You come right back out. It hasn't rained or anything. Do you sump then? Oh, you're putting me on the spot. I, I'm just curious what you do. Well, normally I would do, uh, if I didn't put fuel in it, Yeah. I, I probably, and, I, and everything was, and nothing had changed, and yeah. it didn't rain or yeah, anything, yeah, yeah. then I would... I might skip it on that one. See, I don't sump either then, and I think that's okay. I mean, it ha- you've you know the airplane's sitting right outside the door. Yeah, but you get up and check it visually, right? Yeah, absolutely. I and the too. oil too. It's yeah, all the time. Absolutely. Yeah, so it's like, flight. yeah, if you refuel, definitely do that sump check for the water. Right. And you know, we've known people personally that have been misfueled jet fuel in their piston airplane. Yeah, you got to check for that. And the other thing is that um, you know, Avgas mixed with with a jet yeah it, it almost looks the same i know that you there's a thought before that it's like oh it turns clear or whatever no it's really hard to tell visually it feels different yes it's got a slimy feel yeah to you get it. that oily stuff and what i started doing the past few times ian um is like get, going ahead and getting like a paper towel or uh, you know something from the fbo or yeah. a little or a little rag or something that's that's white and just put a drop or two of the um avgas fuel on it and you know what you're looking for is oh, it's gonna, stains blue when it exactly. dries. Exactly, and oh, you want cool. well, you That's want smart. to well, you want to dry quickly. Yeah, and you don't want that that oily feel. You yep. know, and you can yep. smell it and you can feel it. Yeah, so um, That's smart. It's interesting. Yeah, cool. Now we do we use those Gats jars yeah. where I'm frequently putting the fuel back into the the tank yeah. so that we're not throwing it on the ground. It's yeah. environmentally safe, you know, safer that way. Yeah, no, so, that's true. Now, uh, do you do that too? Uh, I do. I sure yeah. do. Yeah. The the hard part comes if you find water because you're not going to put that back in the tank. Yeah. I'm so a then you got to dispose of it properly. Yeah. So, yeah. So NTSB says know how much fuel you have on board at all times. Don't guess. During pre-flight measure and or visually confirm. I would just say visually confirm, you know, meaning if you if it's right up to the top, you're good or measure it if it's not right up to the top. Uh, know how much fuel you'll need for a flight. Do that based on time and known fuel burn. Right. Know how much fuel you reserve you're going to have left. Know your engine's burn rate and monitor because sometimes it'll change. You'll have maybe a leak, whatever. <laughs> it will, right? man. It will. Yeah, absolutely. Know your fuel system and how it works. So some of these accidents are from complex fuel systems where people are switching incorrectly. And I get it. That can happen. But, you know, training takes care of that and know what you're doing. Review your aircraft's POH and use the appropriate checklist. Yes, absolutely. Don't stretch your available fuel supply. Stop and get gas. Very simple. That is simple stuff. And I'll give you a case in point where that things, like, even the most simple thing, you know, could bite you a little bit. So I was in a uh, one of our retractable gear aircraft that I haven't flown all that much, but yeah. I'm pretty pretty familiar with retractable gear planes. I had a Mooney for a long time, and so I was flying along, flying along, and I was thinking, you know, this plane isn't really that fast. Hmm. I don't know why it's not really going faster. Uh, yeah. The wheels were up. Okay, that's good. <laughs> 
That's a good first but thing I to had, check. But I had forgotten to retract the flaps. Oh. And so that extra drag made the plane slower. Yeah. And I noticed it on the fuel burn. Oh, yeah. I yes. noticed it Absolutely. on the gauge. I was yes. like, wait a minute. Something's not right here. Yeah. So uh, I retracted the flaps. And there you then, go. Case in point, look at your checklist. Yeah. No, no, that's so. that's great. You know, I used to, the whole switching tanks thing, I used uh, to do it based on time. I'd right. do like a half an hour after takeoff and then every hour there thereafter. But um, I realized that it wasn't very reliable. I kept forgetting. And so now it's like, I just use the GPS alert, the message oh, alert. Oh, that's a good way of doing it. Because it's sure. like, you're never going to let one of those alerts go because they they drive you nuts if you do. And so it's like, eh, just rely on the technology. And you so, can do that. Yeah, sure. you got to find a system that works. Do you start with a, with an aircraft that has left and right tanks? Do you start left or right? So that's a good question. Uh-huh. It depends on the airplane. And so maybe I'm going a little rogue here. I, I just start with whatever it was left on. Okay. Because um, I know some checklists, in fact, the diamond checklist tells you to switch tanks when you're on the ground. Mm-hmm. I never, I was never comfortable doing that. It's like, I don't know. I thought, man, if there's a problem, I'm taking off. It's like, if I'm going to switch tanks, I want to be high up. So I've got a place to land in case something happens on the. I like that aspect of thinking about it too. And and I would usually try to switch tanks when I was within gliding distance of an airfield, if that was an option. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But like things on the Bonanza, they say, well, if you got it on this one tank, if you have a problem, you can switch quickly on takeoff. But if you got it on this other, if you switch quickly, you could go to the off position. And so yeah. people think through stuff like that. But I'm like, oh, leave it on the tank. It's on. You know, that's my attitude. One less thing to go wrong, really, when you're thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. So. Okay. All right, cool. So um, let's pick this back up. We were talking about the, the Part 13 and Part 16 complaints. A bit of AOPA news. I want to talk about this egregious FBO pricing. Yeah, this is uh, really something that has... Now, we brought to the attention of a lot of folks just in the past several months, yeah. and I had no idea how how bad it was at several airports. This is not every airport in the country by any stretch of the imagination. No. But just a few going rogue, like you were telling us about yeah. going rogue before, yeah. are where there's not much competition. They're really making it hard for GA pilots to operate yes. in those places. Yeah, that's right. So we've been soliciting feedback from pilots, asking about their experiences at airports in terms of fuel prices, ramp fees, We've seen a lot of really interesting things, such as these services where FBOs have these things where it's like if you lease a hangar from them, Uh they also require that you buy fuel from them, which is totally no-no. And so it's like seeing a lot of that kind of stuff. A little bit of collusion there. Yeah. So um, anyway, we our top five most complained about airports are Heber City in Utah, Waukegan, Illinois, Key West, Florida, Asheville, North Carolina, Rochester, Minnesota. And so on August 28th, um, we took action with affected pilots okay. and filed Part 13 complaints against Waukegan, Asheville, and Key West. All right, now, Waukegan, is that like suburban Chicago? Yep, you got it. Okay, now we know where Key West is down in Florida, Yep. the furthest point south in the U.S. Yep. And Asheville, and the beautiful mountain country of North Carolina. Yeah, beautiful. And then uh, out in Utah. Yeah, the Utah and Rochester, it's interesting. Utah has got some of their own issues. But anyway, we focus just um, with the affected pilots on these three airports for now. Just some examples of what's gone wrong uh, at some of these. Waukegan, right? Uh, a member uh, wrote to us and said, quote, the stopover plan to allow my passengers to use the restroom and switch seats. So basically that's it. Right? That's pretty simple. Yeah. And you would think that that would be an, an in and out situation. Yep. No biggie. Yeah. No big deal. It's like, you know, land, use the bathroom, leave. Like going to McDonald's to use the restroom. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the FBO wanted 55 bucks to be able to do this. 
or 10 gallons of fuel. The person didn't need fuel, couldn't really take it on, and didn't want to pay six fifty for their fuel either. Six and a half bucks a gallon. Yep, yep. So uh, another one at Waukegan um, wanted to park his airplane for two hours. It's a 4,400-pound aircraft. Signature was going to charge him 236 bucks. So now 4,400-pound aircraft, let's look at that. Is that like a bonanza a little bit bigger than a bonanza yeah something like that Maybe yeah a twin I yeah i mean that's Seminole. It. i don't know yeah right you got yeah. it yeah yeah <laughs> we're not talking about a jet here right so um pretty amazing stuff uh asheville now i've been to asheville before it's yeah. been a long time since i've been there okay uh it's a beautiful part of the world and that's a popular destination place because the Biltmore House is there and, mm-hmm. and a lot of things. Yeah. A neat little downtown area, too. And really, aviating is a great way to get to Asheville. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So in this case, the member decided not to go there after reading online about a pilot who was charged 400 bucks for two nights that included, this is not fuel. The tie-down or ramp fee? Handling fee, security fee. right. Uh, overnight ramp fees and use of a GPU. So when I flew my air coop there with my wife Lisa <laughs> from yeah. PDK, yeah, uh, four hundred dollars would have been cost prohibitive because yes. a lot of people go there for their you know to to do a spa day. That's what she was doing at the yeah. time. Yeah, and, it, and the spa day costs less than that. Yes, yeah. yeah, exactly. So anyway, these are just some examples, um, but keep those complaints coming if you've had issues. Um, now, where can folks? Where how can folks get in touch with us for something like that? David, great question. Um, if you've had an issue, go to www.aopa.org/fbofees. FBO fees. Yeah, that's pretty simple. Yep, and uh, tell us about your experience. So we want to know about these experiences so that we can address them. And and really, the more we find out about it, the, the more AOPA can do. You know, APA wants people flying. We want people out there, and we want to keep things economical as yeah. much as possible. Yeah, you know that's a great point. I nobody is saying that an FBO can't charge any fees or shouldn't be charging any fees or anything else. Right? They got to make money. They have to stay in business. Yeah. Without the FBOs, we can't fly. Yeah. Yeah. So we totally get that. I think the issue is it's just when the pricing gets out of control, and and in many cases when there's a monopoly at, on the FBO. And we've seen a lot of that consolidation in the FBO industry in the past couple of years. And that, that seems to be that there's a, that, that hasn't stopped yet. And as things uh, progress, we might see more of it. So let's keep our members aware that there's that, um, that FBO page and they could, they could uh, alert us to anything that they see. Yeah. So real quick, just want to talk about the fly-in that's happening this weekend. In Norman, Oklahoma. Yeah. September 8th and 9th. David, I know you've been to a couple this year. I went to a, uh, one a couple of years ago. But uh, these are great events. And now they're so two-day format. Yeah. It's really interesting. The first day, Friday, is a day filled with workshops, Ian, and it's just awesome. Uh, folks out in Camarillo, California, really enjoyed the hands-on owner maintenance workshop. Yeah, that is very cool. They also enjoyed the Pilot Plus One workshop, uh, which was really good for your significant other. And then uh, it was the IFR refresher was extremely popular and a very interesting participatory scenario. Oh, nice. The people really liked that. They got into it and they were shouting out questions and answer sessions. <laughs> cool. And then, uh, then there's an understanding aviation weather session at Norman. Well, so the understanding aviation weather, you've got the weather center there, which is just supposed to be an amazing facility. It is. In fact, should we 
take a quick side trip to yeah. tell people about the side trip yeah, there. Yeah. It's only $10 to go visit the National Weather Center in Norman, Oklahoma. Cool. 500 people work there. Oh, wow. And this is like where the, the big-time weather models are, are you know projected and things like that. And it helps understand, I think it helps pilots understand more about aviation weather to, to see what goes on behind the scenes over there. Yeah, that is cool. That's, so a, now, that's an inexpensive yeah, it little is. trip, little day trip. So now what if people want to go flying when related to the fly-in? They can fly out, right? They, to Textron Aviation. Okay, cool. And that, that only costs $12. That's cool. Of course, you're on your own for, you know, yeah, for the airplane, bring yeah. your own airplane. <laughs> B-Y-O-A, bring your own yeah, airplane. Yeah. And uh, but that's a neat thing. We did a uh, we did a fly out in um, Camarillo, yeah. over to Catalina Island, courtesy of the Cessna Pilot Society and Mike Jesh, who's a prince of a guy. Yeah, and that was the most fun I had in a long time with aviation. It was so interesting. Yeah. So this one, they're going into Independence, which is where they build the Cessna singles. Uh huh. So you get to tour the factory, and uh, it's gonna be a great day. That's fun. And it's fun to have the camaraderie with other pilots yes. and hang out and just really get to know folks. And that's what flying is all about, and especially that's what fly-ins are all about. Yeah. So finally, one more thing that's happening at Norman that's really cool is there's going to be a stole demonstration, short oh. takeoff and landing. So these guys that do these amazing, like, go over the 50-foot obstacle and put it down in 100 feet sort of things. You know, I saw a little bit of that over at the um, at AirVenture, uh, not this past one, but the year before, and it was so much fun to watch. And the crowd was clapping. <laughs> they were getting into it. That's cool. Yeah. That's great. So, yeah, check that out on the AOPA website, the Norman Fly-In. That's happening September 8th and 9th. And uh, come join us. You have a good time. So finally, uh, want to end. Uh, unfortunately, I guess on a mixed note. Um, of course, everybody knows you've been watching the regular news um, with uh, Hurricane Harvey um, and and all the just the unbelievable flooding that's happening down there and the people who are affected. Uh, want to talk about the aviation impact of that? Yeah, there's a couple of sides to this, Ian. Um, the first thing that I'd like to uh, let our uh, podcast listeners know is that there is a way to help. And we've had a lot of people that have. Uh, emailed and called us wanting to know how can they help. Well, don't forget, right now there's a temporary flight restriction in that area, so don't just get in your airplane and fly off somewhere. Oh, that's good so advice. Double-check that to begin with. But look, there are, there's one um, overall umbrella um, association that we work with called AeroBridge, A-E-R-O-B-R-I-D-G-E, and they help coordinate a lot of the rescue activities that are going on, uh, resupplying of first responders, um, food, uh, things like chainsaws are brought oh, into yeah. the area. And so um, so we I wrote a couple articles about this recently, and um and just to let our podcast listeners know, there there are things you can do. You can volunteer yourself or your aircraft. And AeroBridge uh, basically is, is a nonprofit. And, um, and Marianne, the president, told me that every dollar they get goes back into that support. There's there's no no salaries. It's all pro bono. So pro bono means for free. Yeah, right. So these folks are really doing it for free. And it's, it's basically, a, you know, That's they great. handle calls and they coordinate the logistics. Oh, wow. So if you and they loaded up three Cessna 172s just uh, yesterday with chainsaws, blades, two-stroke oil, things like that. Great. So the first responders near Rockport, which was hit hard on the uh, Gulf Coast of Texas, yeah. so that first responders could cut their way through uh, certain streets with down trees and power poles to get to other neighborhoods. Hmm. So there's a lot of that going on. 
Um, so Airbridge is a good place to start. Now, tell me about um, the airports down there, because obviously, you know, to be able to help and fly in, you got to have an airport to fly into. And that's been a little sketchy. Several of the airports were, were right off the bat. The airports were closed because um, the conditions were so bad and the wind was, was so strong. But several of the airports in and around the greater Houston area were underwater or the entry to the Houston airports um, was basically impassable. Yeah. So um, we actually have a story um, on that. It's a sidebar to one of the articles I wrote earlier this week at AOPA.org. We actually had it on the homepage for a while, but we could, um, we're going to update that as we can. I was just talking to Rune Duke, our, our airspace specialist, and he said there's not one real clearinghouse for us to tap into to check on that these days, hmm. like there used to be. And even the uh, flight service stations might not have all the info. The best bet is to call the airfield on the old good old-fashioned phone okay. and check it out. Okay, good to know. Don't forget, things like AWOS service might be down, VORs hmm. might be down, Pappy lights might be down at certain airports, things like that, because of the point. flooding. That's a great point. You know, is the electricity on or off? We really need to call ahead. Yeah. And, the, and the best bet is to call ahead to the airport directly or to another pilot in that area. Hmm. Yeah, I heard some uh, just amazing stories. I mean, obviously all over the place in terms of first responders and everything else. But a lot, one thing people forget about is air traffic control. And I heard uh, just some great stories about controllers who basically were stuck in their islands of, you know, of the airport. Uh-huh. I can't remember if it was Hobby or International. And uh, and so it's like, you know, I, I don't know, a handful of controllers holding down the fort basically for approach and everything else. Yeah. And, and they were talking about having to get supplies to them because they couldn't get out. There, there you go. And that's where a lot of the GA relief effort comes into place. Because little, you know, smaller airplanes can dart in and out a little bit. And listen, you can um, pilots really need to think about this a little bit. But if they are on one of those compassion flights, that does kind of open the door to you to get into a temporarily flight restricted area hmm. if you're operating with one of these umbrella organizations. Okay, All you have right, a special you have a special call sign. The other thing is that you know we as pilots and as humans we love our pets. Yeah. And a lot of people consider pets part of their family. I know I do for my dog, Happy, and my, mm-hmm. my cat, Simon. Although Simon, ah, I can you know, leave him sometimes. <laughs> Happy's a cool uh, border collie. But yeah. for folks, in all seriousness, folks have had to leave their pets behind Yeah, sometimes because they're in such a hurry to evacuate. Sure. Or they can't find the animal. Animals yeah. are scared, that kind of thing. So um, Pilots and Paws is another great volunteer rescue effort that's out there that uh, folks could participate in yeah again it's like a clearinghouse they have an online forum and you basically sign up and you can uh you can volunteer to be a pilot you can volunteer to be a car driver to okay. transport Fantastic. Uh, the pets on the ground Fantastic. and so they need that too debbie boys uh runs that organization and uh, again a nonprofit. And pilots get such a good feeling about helping out with things like that. There yeah. are things you can do. Good. Yeah, that's good. I heard that, uh, I heard just today actually that after Katrina, they said something like 150,000 animals died. That's and so, too bad. So I know that uh, people, to be able to help out with Harvey, it's like, yeah, you can uh, pilot some paws, help get some animals out of those shelters, bring them to non affected areas so that basically other animals that they do find who are okay can take up that space in the shelter right and And that's what they're doing they're shuffling some of the animals that are already in the shelters away from the shelters to bring the local ones in and then try to locate the the owner yeah and a lot of times the owners are at 
um, an evacuation facility. Yeah. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know if the evacuation facilities allow you to bring yeah, in pets or not. Yeah. Some might, some might not. Yeah. But that's part of the deal, too, until wow. things get sorted out. Um, our good friends at the Civil Air Patrol just got airborne the other day. They were socked in due to weather. They operate in visual meteorological conditions, but they were out to do um, aerial assessments, basically recon work. Okay. Uh, take photos of uh, bridges and power lines and things like that, um, the infrastructure. And so the CAP recently had an, a summer emergency session of training. Hmm. And so a lot of these um, cadets and adult pilot volunteers participated in that just in July. So they're going to put some of that training to use almost immediately. Awesome. Yeah, awesome. so they kind of turned the corner on that. And then a, a real tip of the hat to the Coast Guard. I don't know if uh, any of our folks um, listening have seen some of the video or tapped into that, but the Coast Guard has been doing stalwart work, doing aerial rescues, very dangerous aerial mm -hmm. rescues. They did already over 300 of them. Wow. And uh, snatching people from roofs and uh, just quite amazing. And you're a helicopter pilot. Yeah. I mean, how hard would that be to do? Oh, I can't imagine. I, I mean, those guys are obviously so much better trained than, uh, not that my training was bad, but they're, they're, they've had more training than I have. And so I, it's so far beyond what I can even imagine being able to do skill wise, um, and the weather that they fly into. And it's just, I was, um, I think it was Monday already. They had made like 35 rescues in the Gulf, uh, after the, like a fishing boats, people on fishing boats and stuff like that. And you get figure it's like, they were still getting hammered by that weather. It's so. a, that's amazing. Yeah, that is incredible. Now on the flip side of the, of the coin, we need to talk about this just a little bit. You know, we've seen some drone video that's been spectacular and there's, there are two sides to this. Like there are to many um, topics. It's good to know what's going on. And a lot of people have complimented some of the news organizations for, uh, the drone video that yeah. has been posted and also helicopter video. But at the same time, the FAA has warned drone pilots, un unauthorized drone pilots to stay out of the emergency area. And don't forget there is a TFR there and, and folks need to understand what that means. It's there for these emergency folks to get people off the houses yes. to the hospitals. Um, and we just, as pilots, we just have to work with that for a while. We might not like it. We all want to fly, of course, but, um, but we do need to be cognizant of the fact that it's for safety. Yeah, absolutely. Good point. All right. So, um, from, uh, from the heroes in Houston to, uh, to Chuck Boyd, um, this is an interview. Uh, so the audio, it's it, you're going to find it's it's a little interesting. Dave Hirschman went down and actually uh, met with Chuck. Yeah. And um, and so this is from a video interview, and uh, it, it's just the guy is amazing. Um, just a true American hero. Um, spent thousands of days in the Hanoi Hilton. Yeah, um, the Hanoi Hilton for folks who might be young podcast listeners, this wasn't really a hotel. No. No. <laughs> this is a bad place to be. Yeah. And the folks who came out of the Hanoi Hilton uh were really strong individuals. Yeah. They had to have that that inner uh, mental stability and the physical strength yeah. to power through that yeah. during the Vietnam War. Yeah. So um, so he spent some time there, had a very long and illustrious Air Force career, retired as a four-star general, and uh, now is a GA guy. A big GA guy. Uh, 
Um, we always just ask the difficult questions first, which is say your name and spell it, please. <laughs> My name is Chuck Boyd. I'm Charles Boyd, C-H-A-R-L-E-S Boyd, B-O-Y-D, but I go by Chuck. And, um, and tell me about uh, this, the Cub and, and your introduction to flying. When did that happen? Well, I was introduced to flying um, when I was seven years old. Actually, probably a little bit before that because I, for some reason, um, I was fascinated by airplanes. If I saw an airplane going over or if I was in the car with my family and we went past an airport, I would say, oh, look, airplanes. <laughs> Why I was drawn to that, I can't tell you, but by the time I was seven, I was sufficiently um, agitating to my father that uh, he allowed me to go for a ride in a Piper Cub, a J3 Cub. A 15-minute ride from a little airstrip between Rockwell City, Iowa and Lake City, Iowa on, my, on the road to my grandmother's house. In that 15-minute ride, in that Cub was maybe the most significant 15 minutes of my life because when I was finished with that, I was determined I was going to fly. I wanted to fly. I didn't know what I wanted to fly or where I wanted to do it. I just knew that I wanted to be a pilot in an airplane. And by golly, I got to do that. And and tell me about the route that you took to do that. What was what was the when did you uh, learn to fly as a as an actual pilot in command? Well, it took a few years. Uh, it took a few years, but um, I, I got into the Air Force. I read every book I could find on flying and fighter pilots and what have you. And so I I had refined my desire from age seven to the point where I knew I wanted to be in the military, uh, either the Navy or the Air Force and that I wanted to fly fighters. The most convenient um, place for me to get into that was uh, the Air Force and the Aviation Cadet Program. And so I took the tests, uh, the physical and the, and the mental quizzes and what have you, and uh, was accepted when I was 20 years old. And uh, I entered the Air Force and Air Force Cadet Training and went on to fly another of my airplanes, mm -hmm. the T-34. Right. So, so this this airplane that we're standing next to, this Cub, is significant because that's what got you started. That's right. You know, it turns out that this Cub isn't yellow, and it isn't the Piper Cub. Piper doesn't make them anymore, but a lot of people make Cubs. Right. And uh, this is a modern one with a much bigger engine. And uh, like every uh, pilot, probably, if you can get a bigger engine, you want mm -hmm. one. And the and the T-34. I mean, what was your experience like with that airplane? I know that. You know, it must have been in, intimidating as a as a as a 20-year-old to hop in that airplane for the first time, or or was it? Did you feel at home in it? I I was I don't think I was intimidated. I had been wanting to do this for so long, and when I got the chance to do it, it was like coming home. Now I didn't know what I was doing, mind you, but um, I had an instructor, wonderful instructor, as it turned out, and very quickly I I started to feel at home in that I was learning and I there are all kinds of new things but but the the sense of doing what it is I really wanted to do and the and the kind of determination to do it really well um, just was overwhelming it was uh, it's hard for me to explain I just think I was happier 
uh, I was having more fun in life than anything I'd experienced up to that point. Well, that's interesting that you got that that uh, that the joy was there from the beginning because you know for for so many military pilots especially, you know they they regard it as a stressful, dangerous job and they take pride in doing it well. But it, there seems to be little joy in it. Well, that's not my experience. Uh, my experience is I enjoyed it. Okay. And I still enjoy flying. You learned to fly first in the T thirty four and then through a series of airplanes that took you to. Vietnam flying. Uh, tell me about your Vietnam experience. Well, I'd had a, I had uh, gone by way of first of all the F one hundred and done training in the F one hundred, a lot of training in the F one hundred and operational tour, and then I got into the F one hundred five. And at about the time that I had been flying it for a year or so, uh, was the time in which the Vietnam War was really getting underway and a in a dramatic uh, fashion, and so I became involved in that. Operated out of uh, uh, an air base in Thailand, the Karat Air Base, and flew missions primarily uh, over North Vietnam. A few missions in, in Laos, but principally the F-105 was the, uh, the airplane of its day uh, that could carry a lot of um, ordnance and it carry it uh, a long way and carry it very fast, mm -hmm. and uh, and that's what I did. Okay, so it was on your 105th mission that you were shot down. What what do you what what stands out about that day? Well, that was not a real good day uh, <laughs> in my life. Um, I was on a SAM su suppression mission, and uh, had spotted a couple of uh, uh, a SAM site where a couple of uh, uh, SAMs had been fired and. Uh, was setting up to attack it when I was uh, uh, I was hit by AAA fire. Up in the Hanoi, and this was in the edge of Hanoi, that was the most uh, heavily defended airspace in the history of warfare. And so uh, everybody that had anything they could shoot, from an artillery piece to a rifle to, uh, to SAM-2 missiles, uh, they were shooting them when we came to visit. So I got hit by AAA and uh, and uh, very quickly thereafter, it seemed like a prudent thing to, uh, to get out of the airplane. How fast were you going at the time that you ejected? Very fast. <laughs> Something over 600 knots. And I, uh, the fire, my aircraft was on fire, it burned through the flight controls, and the flight controls became useless, and the airplane just gradually rolled over and started heading down. The only thing that was working and left in the cockpit were static uh, instruments. Uh, I had an airspeed, uh, small airspeed, and I looked at it and I saw a needle passing through 600 knots and uh, decided that that's pretty fast, but uh, if I stay with this just a few seconds longer, it won't make any difference anyway. So I pulled the handles. Right. So that must have been a, a violent event in itself. It all happened so quickly, and I, the vector downward was such that uh, I came out of the airplane, separated from the seat, and the chute opened, and uh, I got about two swings out of it, and uh, I landed in a rice paddy up to my knees in mud. Were you physically injured in the ejection? I was not, and it's, um, it's, uh, it's um, also one of the lucky things of my life. Um, to be taken prisoner is, uh, is not a real good thing to happen, but it's really bad if you're injured. 
broken bones, uh, uh, burns, and what have you, and as many people were. And that makes that experience um, unpleasant uh, at best, um, really, really difficult. So if you have to get in that situation, uh, try not to have any broken bones and, uh, and, and no burns on your body. And right. That was my case. The date that you were shot down was? April 22nd of uh, 1966. Right, and you were, you were a, a captive until February 73, correct? That's correct. That's a long time period. I mean, that was the, the lunar landing, um, you know, the first, the, I guess the, uh, the, the Watergate, the second, the beginning of the second Nixon administration. I mean, there was a lot of, when you were, when you were a captive, were you aware of the things that were going on in the outside Very world? Very little. Uh, no, we did know some things because uh, uh, the, the North Vietnamese um, piped in news, maybe nowadays it would be called fake news, um, to ourselves uh, and, and they would uh, principally report any bad thing that was happening in our country and so forth. So, we would know some things that were happening. We could interpret their reporting on a bad side. There's probably a good side to that. But nonetheless, um, in many respects, by the time we were released, we were kind of, we had lived in a vacuum, uh, uh, potentially a vacuum uh, of information and, uh, and were flooded with a, a completely uh, new world when we were. Right. Repatriated. And how were you able to? Um, did you were you able to form bonds with the people that you were incarcerated with? Oh yes, of course. Some um, some of the most special people in my life were people that had a shared experience. We still get together on occasion. I had dinner in Washington uh, within the last couple of weeks with a group of those uh, people that I shared that experience with. And we're having a, a reunion, as a matter of fact, in uh, November in New Orleans, uh, where we get together periodically. What's it like when you see each other now? I mean, do you feel like, uh, you know, when you see people from a period in your past, you uh, it seems like you're kind of transported back in time somewhat. I mean, do you, is, is it that way with your, your fellow POWs? It's a, they're a very small group of people that, that, that understand something that you understand, that you share together, that virtually no one else in the world does. And so there's a, a, there's a level of communication on a subject that, uh, that you're not likely to share very much with uh, anyone else. Did you think about flying much during the time that you oh, were? Yeah, of course. I mean, this was uh, flying with that, but at that point in my life was, was, was everything in my life. Um, and now it's a, it's a complete absence of that and the prospects of uh, getting to do that again, ever, uh, getting to do anything again, ever, <laughs> outside of a prison was uh, certainly un uncertain. But, and we'd tell stories, about flying stories and experiences that we'd had, we'd share with each other and, and laugh and exaggerate probably. And, um, so, yes, for me, especially though, um, flying was always on my mind. Were you confident that, that someday you would fly again? 
I was pretty sure, um, and, and there are no certainties, but I, 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 I was always optimistic that at some point I'm going to get out of here. And uh, at some point, uh, I hope I can get back into flying. And it took a while. And I had some medical things that, uh, that kept me from flying for a while. But eventually I got to fly again and, uh, and flew then for the rest of my career in the Air Force. But that was all, my experience all, even though I had a cub that got me into the business. Right. Was when you returned to flying in the Air Force, was flying still joyful or was it, did it conjure up other, other unpleasant memories? Well, it wasn't, I, I didn't, when I got back into flying, I wasn't back into fighters. And, uh, and so there's a special joy about flying fighters that doesn't exist in anything else, in my view. But, but flying anything is better than flying nothing. And even flying a B-52, which is a, a marvelous implement um, and has served this country so well for so long. You, you can't really say that's flying, it's fun to fly. But what you're doing is important. So if it's not fun, you get a sense of the importance of what you're doing. Right. And the importance of this machine and its mission and how well it performs it. Flying, there's always that, just the, the feeling in your hands of making a machine do what you want it to do. Right. Um, there's a tactile pleasure in that, even if it isn't a joyful thing. It's uh, there's a sense of satisfaction to make this big machine respond in a way that makes it do what I want it to do. You're the only U.S. POW, American POW, that became a four-star general. How how did that come to pass? What do you attribute that to? Largely luck. Um, Anybody who gets to the top of whatever mountain they're trying to climb um, got there at least partly on the basis of luck. But there's some other things that go to it. Um, when you get to do something you really like to do, that you really think is important to do, chances are you'll do it pretty well. And that's kind of where I was. At the time that I came home from prison, I had been I had been a prisoner for a fifth of my life. That's a pretty big hunk. How many days? Well, I was 35 or almost 35 years old. I'd spent seven years in prison. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew this. I knew that I wanted to serve the country. I wanted to stay in the military. I wanted to do, I love this country and, and I wanted to continue to service. I wanted to fly if I could. If I couldn't, there are other things I could do. And I found those other things I could do. Um, and some of them I did pretty well. And then I got some breaks along the way, like timing and so forth, that uh, anybody who tells you anything differently is probably uh, not telling you everything they know. But I got to serve the military and serve the country in, 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 a, in a satisfactory way. In the, in the 70s, when um, the country hadn't completely overcome this a traumatic experience that it had kind of gone crazy with. Um, people would see me, meet me, maybe in civilian clothes and in a different environment, and say, ask me, um, what, what do you do? 
And I would say, uh, I'm, I'm a social worker. What, what kind of social work do you do? And I would say, I'm in the military. And they would look at me kind of strangely. And I would say the number one social service that any nation provides for its citizenry is to provide for their security. And that's what I do. All right, David, I, I really enjoyed that. Chuck's an amazing guy um, and really cool to hear from him. We thank him for his service and for others who are uh, in the military. We really do appreciate their service. Yeah, absolutely. All right, I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tillis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk on the Sporties Takeoff app and at iTunes. All right, we'll see you next time. See you, Ian. Hangertalk. From AOPA, your freedom to fly.